everyone. Welcome back to the Judson Podcast. We're a diverse group of friends who get together to talk about faith, culture, and all the things that interest us. For today's episode, we're talking about biblical justice. Uh, what does it look like today and how can we all get involved? And joining us is our special guest, Danielle Blocker. She is the executive director of YPP, Young People for Progress, headquartered in Montgomery County, Maryland. And so we're excited to have her on today. But first, of course, we are going to answer today's question of the week. So today's question of the week is this. What's something, either a TV show or a movie or maybe a song, where you love it so much, It's maybe it's something you grew up with, maybe it's like a favorite artist, but what's something where if you see it randomly, like you're flipping the channels and you see this movie, or you're flipping through the radio and you hear the song, where you just have to stop and like listen to it, or you have to stop and watch a few minutes of it, because it's, it's so cherished in your upbringing. Hi everyone, this is Jenny. Um, I don't know what you're talking about flipping through channels. What is that? Um, <laughs> yeah, we need to explain it to, the, wow. to all the Gen Zers out but, there. No, I used to I used to flip through the channels. <laughs> Jenny, the equivalent would be like, say you're flipping through Netflix or Netflix or you're flipping doesn't... through YouTube. You're flipping algorithm. through like the the Disney Plus feed, and if you yeah. see something on there that's like, oh. Oh, this is from Netflix my childhood. Netflix doesn't have all the good scrolling, stuff. Scrolling, exactly. Yeah, scrolling. <laughs> flipping, flipping the scrolling. I I actually thought of a movie that um, my family was debating what is the funniest movie of all time. And that is the one that I actually thought of for this, too, which is The Princess Bride. I think mm. I could watch that movie just an infinite number of times. It's such a good movie. Is that the Anne Hathaway no, no. What? It's the Princess Diaries. The oh, Princess Bride is, is the that one Julia with... Roberts? No, no, no. It's the one with Andre the Giant. David, don't tell me you have not seen The Princess Bride. But okay, I won't tell you. It's so, it's so <laughs> sweet. It's, it's so understated. And the dialogue is so hilarious. They just say such funny things, very deadpan when you're not expecting it. And it's a low budget movie, but the story and the delivery, just everything about it is so spot on that every time I see it, I just think this is a great movie. And you would think I'd be tired of it because I watched it so many times. But I know that if I ever was flipping through channels, for sure, I would stop for that. Yeah, when I was five years old, everyone was quoting Inigo Montoya. And people are yep. still to this day quoting Inigo Montoya. <laughs> yeah, I, l- I looked it up and I have seen it. There's like a shorter, balding white guy. Inconceivable. With the nasally voice. Yeah, I, that's what made me remember it. Yeah, and like this, there's like a Spanish fencer. Is that Inigo yep. Montoya? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay, I have seen this. That's a good one, Jenny. Who wants to go next? Danielle Blocker. Um mm-hmm community organizer and uh occasional student of history and (laughs) (laughs) you know i like history i think it's interesting you can learn a lot from it right a lot of relevant things grown up also a 90s kid there was a show called recess that used Mm -hmm. to come on uh disney Mm -hmm. channel and then you know uh Mm -hmm. abc on saturdays that is a great show it was just about you know elementary schoolers playing at recess uh but it was such diverse 
group and realizing now it was that era of television in the 90s and early thousands where um kind of diversity was very big right and so you had shows like mm-hmm. um all that right you had uh spinelli who had this like Italian-American family, you know, they made part of them. And like, it's like, it, it, it was very interesting. But um, they had like so many life lessons, but it was a nice kid's show in that everyone wasn't nice. It, it, it showed mm. conflict in a very interesting way. And there were just like a lot of weird characters. Like there was this one called like Guru that would just like sit there at recess and little kindergartners would go to get invites. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I liked recess. Another kindergartner? No, it was a fifth grader. Oh, guru. And the kindergartners who would never talk in, you know, (gasps) straight English. They'd be like, you know? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, blah, blah, blah. You must eat two fortune cookies before. (laughs) That's so accurate. Because I remember, you know, when I was in, like, say, first grade, I felt like the sixth graders were like, you know, like masters. Yeah, like, <laughs> like they're so adult. <laughs> all these things. That's so true. It's a great show. Not being able to tell the difference between someone who's 20 and someone who is like 50. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh dear. <laughs> they're all adults, you know? Yeah. What's weird is um, all these teenagers who know our cartoons, right? Like everyone loves Rugrats. The other day I was walking down the street you know, there's some teenagers and they're wearing like Rugrats jackets. Mm-hmm. Like, how do these guys know Rugrats? Yeah, it's like retro. Like, how do they? I guess they watch it on YouTube or something. It's because our yeah. cartoons were the best. I don't know if they yeah. watch it as much as they just seen clips or whatever memes or right gifts. Yeah, I don't know if they've watched the whole episode. Yeah. <laughs> this is David, and then when you were saying yours, I was thinking maybe Doug or Dragon Ball Z. I'm going to pick Dragon Ball Z. If I see Dragon Ball Z, I'm going to watch a couple. Unless, unless it's one of the ones in between the big sagas or whatever. You remember Yu-Gi-Oh? Mm-hmm. The Yu-Gi-Oh card. Mm-hmm. Man, those I used never... to be like currency in elementary school. Oh, really? <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh cards. Oh, yeah. Did you watch Yu-Gi-Oh, Jenny? Or hear I was about not it? allowed to watch TV, so no, <laughs> when I was little. I had to just go outside and stuff. So wait, how'd you watch Princess Bride? Movies were okay. TV was bad. <laughs> so subjective. If you had kids, like, would you implement the same rule with yours? I'd probably say no movies, because TV right now is awesome. Movies are okay, but we have a lot of good TV. <laughs> TV is also shorter. You have like a 45 minute episode and then, you know, early to bed. <laughs> Good point. Hey guys, it's Scott from Providence. I would say the thing I always have to listen to is, of course, being an early 90s kid. For me, it would be Nirvana. I thought you were going to say so... Green Day or Nirvana. <laughs> okay. I mean, Green Day is still making music, right? But Nirvana is, like, kind of legendary, right? Because they made, like, this amazing music in the span of, whatever, five years. And then Kurt Cobain died. They only made, like, three albums. And to this day, like, their songs are still so powerful. And you see their songs everywhere, like... It was on Captain Marvel, right? 
Yeah, I was in Captain Marvel. It's in Westworld. Like, people do Nirvana covers all the time to this day. The songs are underrated, I think, for how melodic and emotional they are, and they translate well into um, different interpretations. But yeah, anytime you hear Nirvana, I just have to stop and listen to it. Um, you know, I think I've never heard a voice so tortured and yet so poignant as Kurt Cobain's voice. It's amazing, like, the way his voice sounds. Um, so Amber just recently, my wife, just recently got into Nirvana from learning how to play songs on the ukulele. And <laughs> I just saw that. Yeah. She's on Instagram with the ukulele. How did yeah, you yeah. get into Nirvana? Well, I was playing my ukulele one day. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one Nirvana song she learned is actually my, my favorite Nirvana song, which is Come As You Are. It's really funny because like that's one of Nirvana's darkest songs. And you know, the song is kind of like prophetic because uh, the music video like features a floating gun. And in the bridge, it has this line where Kurt Cobain, he sings like, you know, he wishes he has a gun, but he doesn't have a gun. And then eventually he does kill himself. A few like he wants later. to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. So it's a very like dark song. Um, but she sings it, <laughs> but she sings it on the ukulele. So she's smiling like, no, I don't have a gun. <laughs> so very discombobulating. But yeah, uh, Nirvana are timeless. How can you make, can you make a ukulele sound dark? That's a good question. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so today's topic Justice and righteousness in the Bible. And so we wanted to kind of mix that in with um, a friend, Danielle Blocker, who is executive director of Young People for Progress, as Scott mentioned earlier. And it's a group I'm also in. For the first year of it, I was um, vice president to Danielle. I thought we would have Danielle on and we could talk about her forming that and her views, like with church and justice as well as just kind of going to the Bible and seeing what the Bible says about these topics and what other people can can do, what people can do to be involved in justice and things like that. Anything for my former vice president. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks. So I thought we would um, discuss some questions related to how you, I guess, came to develop or value justice and if church or faith or anything like that was a part of it or not? Sure. Um, I think everybody kind of comes to the world with some sense of justice, right? Regardless of the society, et cetera. Like when you think of little kids, like what's something that like little kids say all the time, that's not fair, right? Uh, Mm. Brother hits you. That's not fair. Kids, babies Mm. have a sense, some sense, right? of fairness and not fairness, right? And, you know, how the world interacts with them kind of uh, helps them develop a more formalized, complex sense of justice over time. Short, short answer is I think some of it is just that, that, you know, all of us here also grew up with. Um, But I think the church as well, being a kid growing up in the same church over a long period of time, and seeing how adults and youth dealt with different social and other problems there um, also really uh, helped me develop a sense of justice. 
my church especially gave me a defined enough sense of what love looks like and justice beyond a family level, right? Second to that was my church because it was Mm -hmm. a larger group of people that I was around from, you know, Mm -hmm. five years old um, into a teenagehood. And so I think biggest strong lessons I learned about love and then therefore justice from my church is that um, God loves everyone equally and everyone is valuable to God, right? Regardless of their, you know, class, right? Or race or sins or where they live or whether they're homeless or not. And, you know, I could also see that within my church uh, because, Uh, My church was in kind of an inner suburb of Washington, D.C., and it just had a really interesting mix of folks, right? It was a Methodist church, but uh, this inner suburb was mostly white. And so there are a lot of people who had been at this church from like the 70s, 80s on who were like old white people, Like everyone over like 65 at that church was white, right? Um, But then they got a Black pastor, right? And then a lot of Black people came into the church. And so most of the folks, maybe under 45, weren't white. There were a lot of uh, Black people that uh, were at the church. It was in Prince George's County in an area that had a lot of Mm. Black folks there. But there were a lot of West African immigrants. So there were a lot Mm. of immigrants from Sierra Leone, um, from Nigeria, and then a lot from the Caribbean, too. Did that transition to diversify? Did that happen fairly smoothly? Or were there conflicts along the way? That you there, were there were ups and downs. You know, there mm. were bumps. So I saw that, too. And then when I was nine, we had a pastor, an assistant pastor, that came um, straight from central Mexico to come to pastor at our church. And so wow. we got a large, like his family in a large Mexican um, population, but also like some Costa Ricans, some, you know. Wow. That sounds like such a diverse community. Wow. He would just preach some sermons in Spanish. And so we do mm-hmm. some things where like uh, one person would stand on one side and they'd like say something in English and he'd say something in Spanish. And we started singing, singing Spanish songs, but also West African songs. And, um, and a lot of folks saying, great, this is multiracial, but we're still doing everything in a white way. How do we make it multicultural? And some people were very open to that. And some people were like, no, we've been singing this song this way since the 70s. And watching mm. all that as a kid <laughs> over years was just so interesting. Wait, actually, for that, how much did you see of that as a kid? Ooh, I, you know, adults try to hide things from you as a kid. <laughs> but even the things they try to hide, like things seep through. You know, you can't, you can't hide everything. Kids are smart. They're a lot smarter than we give them credit for, right? They're observant. And sensitive, too. Yes. Like, seeing it in my church, we were all very different, very different incomes, life situations, languages, traditions, ways of worship, right? And there was conflict here, but we would always eventually work it out somehow. Love is also working out your differences, right? No one person's culture or experiences are better than one another. And no one is more worthy of love or help or forgiveness, regardless of what they've done, et cetera. Mm. Um, And so really showing 
God loves everyone. And so as a church, um, we need to extend that love to everyone, even though we're all just super different too. Mm. Um, but also that love is taking care of people in a very tangible sense. If we're called to love everybody and love means taking care of some people, it means if people lose their job, you find a way, can we hire them at this church? Can we have an extra custodian or whoever? Um, how do we pool together money to um, make sure this person can pay their rent or pay for legal fees for this? Very tangible. Love means not letting the hardships of life happen to people and doing nothing, right? Yeah, um, and so yeah. that was a strong lesson I saw from church over and over again. And also forgiveness, right? Mm-hmm. I saw a lot of folks do things in my church that weren't great. <laughs> Particularly like, I can remember an instance where one person, a teenager at the time who grew up in the church, right? I kind of been like raised by this church, especially with a lot of family, not in the United States, whatever, was an instructor for an after school program and stole money from wow. that church and like seeing the adults who like didn't want anybody to know but we like kind of knew negotiate like what do they do right and how do they kind of like discipline this person but still not cast them out because mm. it's still their family and mm-hmm. uh like how we negotiate those really things were like people do wrong that causes harm to other mm. folks within the community but how do you still forgive them and how far should forgiveness extend? So I learned a lot of practical lessons. Wait, what, happened love. what happened there? Um, what happened? They lost the job, clearly. But they weren't banned from the church, yeah. which is good. Which some mm-hmm. people were like, no, they shouldn't be on the property. Like, ban uh-huh. this person. And then other people were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We can't ban this person. This person is like 17 years old. Yes, it was, it was bad. But, you know, you have to consider these things. Like, what is going to happen to this person? if this person's main family structure kind of mm-hmm. is is gone right and right. you know mm-hmm. what responsibility yeah. as someone who we've seen grow up do we have to this person mm-hmm. and do we have to people in general even when they do horrible things that's a great illustration of restorative justice right yes you know like it's really cool that this is something that's becoming more and more of a commonly understood concept you know restorative justice versus retributive justice uh, and for those of our listeners who don't know, you know most of our, our criminal justice system is built off this idea of retributive justice, which is punishing the crime. You know, well, if you do wrong, you have to go to jail for it. A lot of people grow up with that being their only understanding of justice. You know, what we see in the Bible and, and other sources is this idea of restorative justice, where crime is not just like this act of evil that exists in a vacuum. But we think of justice in terms of community and see a broader definition of justice as, you know, breaking the shalom of the community, of damaging the relationships in the community. And the way to fix that is to make those relationships right. And so you try to restore those by not casting out the person, but looking for ways to, like, mend those broken relationships. So that's cool that you learned that at such an early age. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I didn't see that as uncommon to learn those things at the time but as i'm kind of hearing you all talk about it realizing ah maybe that is uncommon to like that other folks would call the police in that instance yeah yeah didn't occur to me why would you do that 
to, you know, someone in your community. Yeah. So let me ask you about the kind of like the next step. So you grew up with this foundation of love and this foundation of justice. What led you to the next phase where you, you know, created this nonprofit, Young People for Progress? Like, what were the steps that led you there? You know, what was the journey like for you? It was a a long process, right? In a series of steps, right? Just led me to see just a lot of differences, like the juxtaposition of how we dealt with things at my church, right? Versus in the world. And also our sense of who is deserving of love and livelihood and respect versus the world. Just lots of contradictions. The world is unfair. This is not right. Um, we don't treat homeless people justly. We don't treat poor and middle income people justly. Like we do injustices regularly. And that's something that at like 14, I'd be like, oh yeah, absolutely. Here are these different examples. I think that led me to be a teenager with a lot of questions about why our society was structured certain ways and why things that I learned that were wrong were so common, right? Um, And so I think the first part was kind of an understanding of injustice and what constituted injustice and why these injustices existed before taking the step of what to do about injustice. I uh, then went to college And I went to college in St. Louis, Missouri, seeing people deal with a lot of injustice and resist injustice in St. Louis, Missouri, I think really gave me a second blueprint of, okay, well, when there is injustice, what can you do about it and how can you resist it? And so there was some hostility Uh, Just even um, in my experience as a student, uh, because my university was very wealthy and, you know, somewhat prestigious, but very few Black students. Um, And so when I um, came to the university, there were a lot of issues of Black students kind of being stopped by campus police if they were just on campus at night, like, uh, why are you here? Do you go, oh yeah, I'm a student. Like here's my student ID, right? Doesn't like, Missouri have a large black population? In St. Louis is 50% black. But uh, the university that I went to did not have a large black population. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like, if there's a black person at this university, they're mm-hmm. probably not a student. So why are they oh, here? No. Like uh, in our first association of black students meeting, maybe like two weeks into uh, the school year, like the upperclassmen gave us advice um, to be safe on campus. And one of the things that there was was kind of the unofficial backpack rule, um, which they said, you know, black guys, if you're on campus at night, wear a backpack and you'll be slightly less likely to be stopped by the police. Mm. Oh man. There have been issues in St. Louis with, um, women being sexually assaulted by police. Injustices as a student, both being an extreme minority in an environment that was kind of hostile, like both a university environment. Like I had some professors that were a a couple, not a lot, outliers that were like kind of racist, but but learned to deal with it over time. Um, But also sometimes resisting the university when the university kind of 
tried to get us to keep quiet about some some things that were going on so that the university could uh, maintain its reputation. It was some Mm. seniors who were like, oh, we told you you did nothing. Now we're going to the press. And so I kind of learned through necessity, like, oh, if we're going to be safe day to day, like we all have to have each other's backs and like Mm. we have to take responsibility for each other. And just understand power dynamics. What do you care about? Oh, you care about bad press. Well, we're going to use this to make sure that folks aren't treated. Or you care about this, right? Mm. Um, so I learned some real tactics, really, just from being a student and trying, you know, wow. to not be harassed along with my classmates and other things. Um, that also extended to employees, too, in an interesting way. Like in college, But also in St. Louis, even the workforce is is segmented very clearly in some areas by race. And so there are some professions you only see white people and then other folks you only see black people. And um, there's a large Bosnian population in St. Louis as well. So some professions you only see Mm. Bosnians. Like even at my university, yeah, there there were like clear delineations. Okay, you can work in this, but (sighs) as soon as you're a supervisor, we only hire white supervisors or, you know, and it wasn't explicit because that's illegal. There was sometimes bad treatment of black employees at my university and students had to have that, especially black students had to have that same solidarity with them. Um, But then right before my sophomore year on August 9th, 2014, there was an 18 year old boy who was walking home from school to his grandma's house in Ferguson, Missouri, which is like a suburb, um, like 15 minutes out from, you know, where I was, who um, was apparently stopped in something that looked like a jaywalking stop and uh, ended up being shot eight times dead by a Ferguson police officer, uh, Darren Wilson. Like all these people were there and saw it in this kind of, like garden apartment community. And um, this police officer went back to the precinct, got blood on his clothes, so like changed his clothes, washed his hands, continued going out on the beat, didn't even report it. It was bad. So anyway, Mike Brown was the, the boy who got killed. Folks went to have a vigil for him the next day. And a lot of people across the city came because this was just an atrocity. And um, when they came for this vigil, police came to the vigil in riot gear and they blocked people's cars um, so that people couldn't leave. They just tear gassed people. um, And and that's how the Ferguson uprising movement started. You know, this boy was killed and just had his body lay there. And not even that got them to uprise. But fact that people can't even have a vigil without being attacked, cornered, tear gassed. That day after, like some of my classmates and other folks were there at this vigil and they were like, yeah, we couldn't get out. I I saw a lot of examples of how people who had been, you know, pushed to the edge really still came together and used whatever community resources or time or people they had to resist injustice and protect the lives of their neighbors and families and friends and themselves. I got a lot of lessons about the risk 
that's involved. All there is to really lose. If resisting injustice was easy, everybody would do it because there's nothing to lose. Mm, Do I really want to lose these things? Or do I want to lose my position or prestige or job or, you know, my safety? Do do I want to risk these things to stand up for what's right? Because there are costs, there are consequences. Um, And so I saw people make a lot of tough decisions, but I saw people build relationships, very strong Mm. and trusting relationships that allowed them to face injustice more successfully than if they had done it by themselves, right? It's hard to resist big things on an individual level. Um, So there were folks that were on West Florissant Avenue, the main street in Ferguson, every single day for a year. They put in curfews and people came anyway. Um, They were spraying people and attacking people with chemical weapons. It touched your skin and burns, but if you put water on it, it would burn your skin more. So you had to use like milk and other things and like, I digress. Um, Have you returned to the area since then? Has there actually been any change over the years? There has been. One of the, you know, activists and protesters who was uh, very consistent in the Ferguson movement, took a lot of risks herself, actually is running for St. Louis mayor. So what, seven years after, I guess, the start of the Ferguson uprising, and she won the primary. But given the, the level of oppression and just institutional racism in St. Louis, to have a Ferguson protester have a shot at being the mayor of St. Louis is huge. Yeah, it only big. happened because the protesters... Many who are just like living their lives, going to community college, going to work at Jimmy John's, like living life, who ended up being out in the streets every day, cooking huge vats of food for all the protesters every day, raising jail support money, all this stuff. Afterwards, they got politicized and they were like, Mm -hmm. "Okay, well, like we were in the streets this long. We only got this much and we had a Ferguson commission to, you know, make these things and we made these great recommendations and they didn't take any. And we got a um, consent decree from the Department of Justice that told, you know, jurisdictions to make these changes. And then those jurisdictions still didn't implement all the changes. So like we did all these things and these didn't work. Well, like maybe we need electoral power because they are very serious about justice and very serious about winning because they know what's on the line to not win. They know not winning means more people will lose their lives, right? Um, Because they are serious, they have taken the time to study and be very strategic about how they're going to make uh, institutional changes. And so you're seeing that in terms of change. Is the St. Louis Police Department still messed up? Absolutely. But have people been able to build their organizing capacity and build power to really contest and, you know, threaten and challenge a lot of these institutions in a way that's making them scared and causing them to change. Yes. And so it's not, yes, you know, people don't get stopped anymore and they don't get jailed and everything's better. No. Um, But in the struggle, have we made real gains? Uh, Yes, absolutely. That's great. Um, I want to go back to something you said and tie it to scripture. 
You said that to stand up for what's right is that it takes risks and consequences. And that actually ties into the scripture that I wanted to share for this episode. Because, you know, in our modern English translations of the Bible, um, we have some passages that talk about righteousness, and then we have some passages that talk about justice. And what a lot of people don't know is that those passages are usually one and the same. So in the Greek, the word for righteousness is dikaios, but that can also be and should rightly be translated as justice because to the Greek understanding, um, they were overlapping. They were pretty much one and the same. Whereas in our modern understanding of those two concepts, you know, we think of righteousness as like individual morality, like the private sphere. We think of justice in the public sphere, but it's not like that in the Bible. And the one passage I want to look at that, Danielle, you reminded me of is um, in the Beatitudes. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A lot of Christians know that verse. As one Yale professor said, when you think about it, that actually doesn't make any sense. Because when is the last time that you saw anybody persecuted for being righteous, right? <laughs> like, like when's the last time someone was persecuted for like being faithful to their spouse or for not stealing or for giving money to charity? In that verse and in a lot of verses, you know, the translators have decided to spiritualize that word and go with the righteousness translation when in that case, it clearly should be justice. Yeah. Like people are persecuted for standing up for what's right and for fighting against institutional power that is oppressing minorities. That's how persecution usually happens. So it's unfortunate that in our in the broader church culture, it seems like there is this overemphasis on personal righteousness at the cost of justice. And actually, oftentimes justice work is sadly misaligned as being Oh, it's a liberal agenda. It's, it's the social gospel. It's what the mainline Christians do and not the real Christians. It's a, it's a fault of translation that I think we see every day in the way that the church decides to go about its business. Especially from our college group, they, I've seen a lot of people use it as if you're persecuted for sharing the gospel or something like that, right. which I guess could be <laughs> partly in it, but that's not the full meaning. Because actually, like you're saying, like Daniel is saying, yeah, if you actually... T- do righteousness or justice or righteousness. Mm-hmm. If you do that in the messed up world, it's always going to be friction. That is really interesting mm-hmm. looking mm-hmm. at righteousness and justice being the same word in Greek because mm-hmm. there are lots of examples when still on an individual level, even if you're not fighting for justice out there, you know, through protesting or something, you can still be persecuted or ridiculed, right, or ostracized for even doing small things that kind of contradict, you know, the unjust norms, Um, whether it be standing up for a homeless person that the police are saying not to panhandle, right, or some small kindness that from your friends or colleagues or in-group is seen as unnecessary. Another thing I want to add to this is There's a really great definition of righteousness that's found in the Encyclopedia Judaica. 
which is, you know, um, the Jewish encyclopedia. There's a Jewish encyclopedia? That's amazing. And the Hebrew language is the same thing as the Greek. They have a single word that represents both righteousness and justice. Zadok is the root word. And this is what they have in their encyclopedia. Zadok, or righteousness, is the constant pursuit of justice and the performance of positive deeds, not merely the absence of evil. Righteousness is a learned trait resulting from the sustained performance of moral obligations. It is not an inherent human characteristic. It is one that we are taught. So I thought that was pretty cool. Just the, just the whole definition, how it is a constant pursuit for justice, right? It's a lifestyle. It's not, oh, let's go to the soup kitchen during the holidays and feel good about ourselves. You know, it's, it's a learned trait. It's something you do. You know, like Danielle, you're talking about all these things you learned from your college experience and onward. What an education that was. You know, one that you, maybe you weren't expecting originally, but you learned so much from that, from the way that the world really works. And it's not inherent. That's also in your story, Danielle, because you're talking about community, how you can't do it alone. Uh, we're not going to be able to do it without having other people around us to, to guide us and lead us and strengthen us to do the work. Yeah. So it's kind of cool how like, this definition kind of goes hand in hand with the journey that you're sharing with us. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You need community to do it, to resist. And also like you can figure out what is right by just being in relationships with people. And on the flip side... I think a lot of us, you know, we grew up in communities that were, you know, for various reasons, theological and otherwise, a lot of church communities were like unwilling to do that work. And so many Christians have grown up lethargic or even suspicious of doing justice work. Mm -hmm. They either associate it with liberal theology or they think like, oh, good deeds. We're not supposed to do good deeds because we're saved by faith. <laughs> There's this weird, like, uh, what do you call it, scarecrow argument about being wary of good deeds because it's going to poison your faith, which is, like, ridiculous. I think there's also some weird sense of over there, not here. Like, justice needs to come um, by doing overseas ministry. But, you know, the United States is completely fine. <laughs> no injustice here at all. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, exactly. you know... It's, you know, those people's fault, right? It's really because, you know, they're not being responsible. Or like they're lazy as a people or whatever, whatever stereotypes there are. Yeah. yeah. And then I've heard the, it doesn't matter if you do a good deed. What is, if the Titanic is going down, it doesn't matter if you do a good deed, but just matters if you preach the gospel. I have heard that too. It doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Why should I even care if people are starving right now in my city? Right. Because all we can do is wait till the second coming. So, right. no, I'm not going to help them now. Arguments that associates have told me about why we shouldn't raise the minimum wage to something livable. I was going to ask about what roadblocks were there as a Christian or like within Christian groups, what roadblocks have there been or difficulties have there been with whatever we're talking about? There were a few roadblocks. Sometimes I felt like I was very much in a middle position because it's interesting. Um, Scott talking about some young people growing up almost being taught to be suspicious of doing justice work, etc. On the flip side, I know a lot of 
uh, young folks who wanted to do justice work or stand up for things that were right, but never saw the church doing it or Mm. saw the church discouraging people from doing it. And so Mm -hmm. came to distrust the church. And Mm -hmm. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to Bible study. You want to come? They'd be like, nah, I'm really about that. Like, I don't really trust them. Mm -hmm. Have fun, Danielle. But within the Christian groups, um, I was in um, uh, a few Christian groups in school. One Christian group that I was in was uh, also mostly white. There, it was great. And they were like, ah, Danielle is so cool from the East Coast, whatever. (laughs) It was good. And, you know, we would do Bible study. It, It was a great time. But when I started protesting, not that I was there every day, but, you know, the little protest I did, folks were very suspicious. No one really asked me, like, oh, like, you protested. Were you safe? Are you right. safe? Are you okay? Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of people in that country asked me whether I was okay, but some people did allude to it being dangerous. Um, like, oh, are you really going with the dangerous protesters? Um, maybe not seeing the contradiction that, you know, I was one of them. Um, also, well, you know, it's really bad what happened to that boy, but they really shouldn't be burning stuff. Not that they were burning stuff. Like most people were just marching um, and we're being attacked. We're being tear gassed, hit with chemical weapons, unarmed, being shot with rubber bullets. And um, they were having violence acted upon them. But some of my students in Bible study were saying, they're being really dangerous and they shouldn't be violent. Not talking about the police who were shooting at them and tear gassing them. Some children who were out there. Um, And so, you know, would just like invite me to slightly less things, right? And, you know, like, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, just like see them in the cafeteria and like, you know, be slightly less eager to, you know, go out of their way to, to say hi. You know, initially I was kind of disappointed by that. Mm-hmm. Ostracization for Russian sake, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you have me ask me to leave these Bible studies and you talk about how you're just so happy I'm part of your Christian group and bringing other folks. Then, yeah, you're, you're ostracizing, but maybe not yeah. realizing the contradictions. I don't know. It was, it was kind of disappointing to me. And then also there was one church that we could get rides to, which was uh, a mostly white church, but was really trying to get a more diverse congregation and particularly more black people in their church because it was a mostly white church. It was in like a black suburb of St. Louis. And so if there are black people literally all around your church and in the neighborhood and in the closest local school, yet all your church is white. And they were like, this is a problem. And this is, I went there like before the Ferguson uprising and the pastor came up to me after one church service and says, we're so glad you're here. You know, like ask me some advice. How can we like get more uh, people to be involved? I'm like, well, one thing you can do is you can show that you genuinely care about like the things that are affecting them. Like the school system, has a lot of issues that are unjust. You could, you know, say you care about those things. You, 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 you could offer support of somehow. And if you offered support to communities, they, they will warm up to you a lot. And you might get more people to come. 
And uh, he said, ah, we don't get involved in politics. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, thanks for coming up to me. See ya. And I never went back. It is kind of off-putting when you hear it in person in real time. Right. From like the pastor of the church yeah. that came out of their way to like right. ask you what would be effective. And then you tell them and you're like, ah, oh, we don't really do that. <laughs> so, you know, really the whole experience, like just being in St. Louis at that time, in some ways made me more suspicious of Christian institutions. It gave me a lot of theological questions. Like if some folks are genuinely trying to be holy and be good, like how can they just be doing it so wrong? Or just like, yeah. you know, really, <laughs> like they are really trying. Well, it seemed like they were trying, but really just missing the mark. And the response from a lot of the white church in St. Louis and the things pastors said about those dangerous people even though they were unarmed people who were being attacked, but never yeah. talked about those dangerous police that are shooting right. unarmed people or chasing my classmates with tanks. Literal tanks. Literal. But I also saw some pastors, a minority, even some white pastors, call those pastors out and you know, kind of challenge their congregations and others. So that was warming and encouraging to see as well. So there were those things. But then there are also challenges, just kind of like fear, you know, you still like aren't really excited to get tear gassed. <laughs> Not exactly. Yeah. Or like you hear stories of like, oh, yesterday, like someone was shot with a rubber bullet, but it like hit their spleen or like hit the wrong yeah. place. And now they're in the hospital and you're yeah. like, oh, I don't want that to be me, but I should still probably go out. And so like there's the fear that gets at you. That's a challenge. You get shamed by some people. Some people it's subtle. But there are some folks that would just shame you to your face. All in all, um, I've been very fortunate and really like haven't faced um, nearly as many challenges as a lot of other folks. Mm. They're also um, St. Louis is small. So a lot of the people protesting for one issue are protesting for all the issues because there are just only so many people in St. Louis. And so uh, (laughs) so a lot of folks. They're working overtime there. Yes, (laughs) who are in Ferguson day in and day out, right? Protesting. Many were protesting for other things, particularly there were fast food workers, mostly Black, who were organizing across St. Louis for um, rights to form unions and uh, have a livable wage. And there were some of them where store managers had done particularly egregious things. Sometimes when people got burned with fryers, uh, managers were like, ah, just put some mustard on it and keep working. Or like some people came a few minutes late and their maids take pictures with signs saying, I'm stupid. I can't even come on time to work. So it was particularly egregious cases. They would get other fast food workers and community members, even, you know, a couple of college students like me to rush the stores in peak hours and hold up the lines by paying with pennies called penny actions to show the store managers. We know that you're doing these things to your employees and we, the community, don't support it. Right. Mm. And so those same people, a lot of those school workers also lived in Ferguson and Mike Brown was their neighbor. And so like folks were being attacked on multiple levels, right, on like a policing level, on an employment level, but we're also organizing, standing up for those things on certain levels as well. 
was there a sense of community in folks who were doing that as well? There was. And a lot of those folks were the same people because St. Louis is only so small. And a lot Mm -hmm. of times the people experiencing the brunt of one issue are also the same group experiencing the brunt of the other issues too. Mm. I feel like this also goes against a very common Christian view, which is the single issue voter, (laughs) which just always makes me think, how much do you really care about justice if you only care about one issue? AKA abortion, you mean? I think if what you really care about is justice and not, you know, something selfish like getting your way, then it will naturally just bleed over into other areas as well. And you'll care about justice as a whole. Right. When I hear you say, do you care about justice? I hear it as, do you care about people? Do you love people enough? Do you think every person is valuable enough to afford to eat, right? Or they should have housing or they shouldn't be shot dead while walking home from school. And so if you care about justice, you care about people and their lives, right? And it also goes to show like how compartmentalized and segregated our communities really are. If you segregate yourself, then you can ignore the fact that there's real people out there experiencing these real deprivations yeah. day in and day out. Exactly. Yeah. That was kind of my experience as far as connecting with Christians. I've had similar issues to ones you were talking about, Danielle, because I think at the end of the day, for those who couldn't empathize or who wouldn't, not I won't say couldn't, who wouldn't empathize and were not a part of others or even close to others. So let's transition to kind of like application and closing. So kind of like you were saying, David, yeah, it's easy for people, it's easy for institutions to dehumanize, to separate. So let's talk about action steps. What advice could we offer to someone who they want to get involved, they want to do justice, their church isn't doing it for them, or they don't know how to start? So what would you guys recommend? Join an organization and organize. Mm. Uh, That is one thing that they could do. I loved what you said earlier when like the pastor asked you, how can we reach people? And you said like very simply, care about the things that are affecting people, right? Like you said it so simply and so elegantly. That was actually, you know, the first thing that I would say for folks who want to get involved in justice or do those things. I would say be in relationship with folks who are needing justice or be in relationship with people enough to know their needs, know what they care about. And I know for some people, like there's like a little bit of a fear of, you know, going outside of their bubble, going outside of their comfort zone. <laughs> but that's, if your faith doesn't take you outside of your comfort zone, then what is, what is faith for, you know? Oh, preach. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine someone listening to this podcast, trying to take this advice and saying, well, you know, I'm in a church and, you know, no one's really doing a lot. And I don't know anybody who are working on problems. Um, to them, I would say just like identify a problem you see in your neighborhood or city or just society and um, figure out, oh, who is working on that? Is anybody trying to do that? And then, you know, give a little bit of your time. Like, oh, they're asking people to join their email list. Join their email list. Come to a meeting. They are asking people to give a Saturday to do something. Go spend that Saturday helping them. It really can be as simple as taking a first step 
to do even something small to not only support, but also to build relationship with those people, right? Mm. Um, Because when you're doing that, oh, you talk with people, you get to know a few of the people who are also doing that work. Um, And then you get to know more about the issue, more about how it's affecting people in a real way and act more. Because I think it is harder to fight for things or fight for people who you don't know you don't know anything about them and and it's hard to consistently care right but when you can tie an issue or justice to one person who you know one person's face one person's story it becomes a lot easier to you know work towards and fight for and i'll add that you know for a lot of people who like are doing this work for the first time you're learning about communities and people who might be very different from you that you're unfamiliar with But the ironic thing is, what I find is that over time, those relationships you build that are based on justice and based on standing up for what's right, those end up being longer term and more sustainable relationships than a lot of the church relationships I've had growing up. I've been in and out of several church communities throughout my life, you know, college fellowships and and local congregations. And those relationships that I thought were deep that I thought we shared so much in Bible study, like poof, they just vanished the moment I like leave the church, right? But then on the flip Mm -hmm. side, with people who care deeply as me about things like racial equality or things like education or, or poverty, I end up keeping in contact with those people like way longer than I thought because there's like way more substance there. There's way more to build off of. So I found that a great foundation for long-term community. I also just want to add that if you're in a church that's not caring about justice, definitely do all these things. But I would say, please, please say something to your church because maybe just you saying something won't change things. But I think some churches maybe get a lot of feedback from people who feel one way on issues. So it's good for them to know because Maybe they don't know. And maybe you go to a church that's like serves a couple thousand people and you think, oh, well, they must know that that people feel this way. I've talked to other people in the church that feel this way. You should still let them know that you personally feel this way and you don't need to write like a a rage email or anything, (laughs) but maybe think through your thoughts. Maybe get a couple of friends to also sign on and say, we're looking for these opportunities outside of the church. We would really love to be able to do this as part of the church. Because I think the more people just throw their hat in and say, look, this is what we want from the church, then the church will be hearing those voices. And if they want to hold on to young people, they need to start listening. Like that's one thing that was very obvious from what you were saying, Danielle, is that young people, millennials and Gen Z, we care about justice. We care about what's right. And it's amazing too. Like I'm also involved with teenagers and one of my nonprofits And they have an innate sense of, like, taking care of people who aren't being taken care of. Mm -hmm. And I think churches slowly but surely are realizing they're taking the stance of the institution. They're taking the stance of the traditionalists. And all these justice movements are blowing right past them. There's always some place we have to be able to try to let God and um, others critique what you got. Otherwise, it's going to be, we don't do politics. I heard what you said, but we don't do politics because that's what I was told. Politics is bad. It's divisive. 
And I mean, I'm sure he has a whole theological reason of why, whatever the script is. Seeking justice is divisive, right? Jesus Mm -hmm. was a very divisive person. And, you know, as Christians, we really have to lean into that. Sometimes we'll have to be divisive Mm -hmm. to be just. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. a great word. Danielle, if people wanted to learn more about your organization and the work that you guys are doing, how can they learn more? They can look us up at ypforprogress.org. For spelled out, so YPFOR progress.org. They can look us up on Instagram at YP for progress or Twitter at YP for progress. Awesome. Thank you for uh, coming on today. It was great hearing your story. Like, it was really inspiring knowing what you went through and how you've like taken what you learned and now you're giving it back to your home community, passing on that knowledge and that wisdom and that passion. That's awesome. It was fun to talk with y'all. You apply biblical perspectives to yeah, Thank you, Danielle. Uh, thank you. Fun. Thanks, everybody, for listening to us again. You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Judson Podcast or email us at info at judsonpodcast.com. Um, let us know what you think. We've been trying to listen to feedback and also bring on more interesting guests. So let us know if you have ideas. Let us know what you liked about this episode. We're available on Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcast, etc. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>